Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode number 409 of the podcast. It's Carrie here. And I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. So excited to have, uh, well, it's been a long time. We're 409 episodes in, but Rick Warren is finally on the podcast. A lot of you know Rick. He is known not only inside the church, but outside the church, having been interviewed by some of the top interviewers in the world. And uh, I had a chance to sit down uh, along with David Kinneman from the Barna Group on our other podcast, Church Pulse Weekly. And we spent a couple hours with Rick, so we're going to bring you the entire conversation on this podcast. And uh, yeah, that is the other voice you hear in this conversation, too. It's me and uh, Barna's David Kinneman. If you haven't yet listened to the Church Pulse Weekly podcast and your church leader, you can find that on the internet. And this episode is brought to you by Promedia Fire. You can get your help with social media management and digital growth and receive 10% off at promediafire.com forward slash carry. And by Barna Cities with Barna and Glue, you can connect people to your local church by going to barnacities.com to learn more. Well, we go all over the place with Rick Warren today, uh, and uh, some of the some of the interview gets really personal and very emotional. Uh, he talks about losing his son a number of years ago, who died by suicide. He talks about the impact that had on him and Kay. He talks about the last year. And what he feels, I think perhaps rightly, that there is an upcoming tsunami of grief that we're going to have to deal with as leaders as people have just lost so much over the last uh, year or so. And then also we talk shop. We talk about how Saddleback grew during the pandemic and uh, why that happened, exactly how that happened. And we kind of go all over the place. So uh, Rick is the founding pastor of Saddleback Valley Community Church, that is the name of the church, in 1980, and he has become one of the nation's leading pastors. He mentors young leaders, and his book, The Purpose Driven Church and Purpose Driven Life, has have sold millions of copies around the world. He also leads and built the Purpose Driven Network, a global alliance of pastors from more than 160 countries. And Rick also founded Pastors.com, an online interactive community that provides sermons, forums, and other practical resources for pastors. And it's just a joy to have Rick, uh, as I talk about this in, in this interview, I think, uh, that was on Mike. You know, I've got all of his books from back in the 90s when I started out in ministry. And uh, it was fun to finally be able to sit down and talk to Rick. Also, uh, in the What I'm Thinking About segment, I've got a section on or a little session at the very end of this podcast about when it's time to leave. Rick has been at Saddleback for 40 years. Uh, how do you know it's time to leave? I've left a few things. I'll share some signs to look for. And uh, I think long-term leadership has its value as well. But we get that question a ton, so I wanted to tackle that. And I want to thank all of you who have left ratings and reviews. That means a lot. If you've enjoyed this podcast overall or this episode, could you let us know? Thanks to uh, Jake. Jake said the Adam Grant conversation was game-changing for him. He said, uh, and this is his review on Apple Podcasts, huge fan of Carrie's podcast for many reasons. His conversation with Adam Grant will probably be the capstone podcast, regardless of who Carrie talks with going forward. I've gotten so many texts from friends and leaders around the world who have been impacted by Adam Grant. If you haven't listened to that one yet, just scroll back a few episodes and you can find it. It's a very kind review, Jake. Really appreciate that. You had a lot more to say. Reddit, really appreciate it. And then uh, J-Time, 
says, most beneficial podcast around. I've been listening to this podcast since 2018. For some reasons, have not left a review despite my intentions. Uh, You listen, Jake, during the car and you love the range of guests and what they bring. Uh, Thank you so much. Really appreciate that. And then uh, Dr. Looks like J.L. Baker says, this is the only podcast I listen to every single week. Thank you, Carrie. Hey, I really appreciate you and thank you for making the time for this. Uh, You know, it's free to you, but I know you pay with your time. And uh, it really, we take that very seriously. The goal here is to bring you unabridged conversations and that's what we try to do. Hey, let's talk for a minute about a couple of partners that we're very excited about before we jump into today's conversation. So, If you're looking to grow your online campus, you got two choices when it comes to digital. You or a team member can work day or night, keep up with all the socials, or you can hire Pro Media Fire. So the choice is yours. Bury yourself in social media work or hire an entire team to help your online campus thrive with Pro Media Fire. You save time, you grow online while your digital team does all the work. It's complete social media management. And as a listener of this podcast, you get 10% off at promediafire.com forward slash carry. That's promediafire.com forward slash carry. And I know many church leaders like you are navigating massive shifts in culture and technology. It's exhausting, but there's hope. So my friends over at Barna and Glue have been working hard to support pastors and church leaders like you. And last year, they launched an effort to equip the church through the State of the Church Research and Toolkits. Over 25,000 churches have benefited. And this year, Barna and Glue are launching Barna Cities. It's a year-long journey. It's uniquely local. With Barna Cities, you'll have access to new local research from Barna Monthly Forums and the City Toolkit. And uh, that also includes a full membership to Barna Access Plus with on-demand reports, insights, and tools. And you'll get Glue Connect, cooperative, always-on ads that run across your city and make it easier for people to discover your church and program. So they would love for you to get involved. See if your city is covered. And you can learn more at BarnaCities.com. That's BarnaCities.com. Well, it's time now to jump into the conversation David Kinneman and I of Said Barna had with Rick Warren. Today, we bring you Rick Warren, the one and only Rick Warren. Uh, Rick, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good to be with you, Carrie. Thanks. I love all your yeah. stuff. Well, and, by huge... the way, I kind of like Dave, too. He's been a, he's been a compatriot. He's been a, a rabble rouser for as long as I knew him. That's why I love him so much. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's a joy. It's the first time you and I, we've connected a little bit just through DMs, but I just want to say a huge thank you. Uh, I was one of the people who bought like the first editions of Purpose Driven Church, Purpose Driven Life, the whole library sitting right behind me. And uh, it's wonderful. As, as I said to David, when I met him, who, you know, from a guy in Canada who finally gets to meet some of the people who've guided him for decades, it's a real joy. So thank you. Thank you. Well, like I said, God has gifted you with a sharp mind and a good pen and uh, you're helping a lot of a lot of ministers and pastors and church leaders out there carry so keep it up man it's very humbling thank you um rick a year unlike anything we ever expected what has been the biggest i mean you know when you've been in in ministry for decades as you have few things probably surprise you but i bet you something surprised you what surprised you over the last 12 months since the whole pandemic started that, that's a great question um you know, it was funny because a year ago in January, uh, every pastor was preaching their 2020 vision message that they thought was very original and very creative. And we were all laying out where we thought the year was going to go. 
And God was sitting in heaven laughing, going, you have no idea. Uh, okay. And I was just two weeks or three weeks into, it was actually last year, 2020 was the 40th anniversary of Saddleback, the 45th <laughs> anniversary of my marriage, uh, my 50th year uh, in uh, ministry, and my 60th year as a follower of Jesus. I've been walking with Jesus for 60 years. And uh, so I was planning all these celebrations there out the door. Okay. And when COVID hit, I immediately switched gears from the message on vision uh, to going through the book of James, because it's a book written to people in transition. Uh, they weren't having a pandemic, they were having persecution. And they'd all been scattered. They'd lost their jobs, they'd lost their homes, they'd lost their friends, they'd been diaspora scattered out. And so I spent the year, I did 31 messages through the book of James. It's only five chapters, hmm. but there was so much stuff in it. It's kind of the Proverbs of the New Testament. So every yeah. verse is like a different point. And I called it uh, principles for living through a pandemic or uh, a, a faith that works when life doesn't. And uh, as we go through these five, uh, you know, storms uh, that we saw this last year, then um, I, I was able to deal with each of those storms because it was so relevant and practical to go through it. The biggest change that I have seen in our society is this. Christians no longer get their primary identity from either Jesus or the church, but they last year, this primary identity was through politics. Wow. That is a terrible, terrible problem. Every time, if you know anything about church history, and I'm a student of church history, I've got over 150,000 volumes in my library. I started reading a book a day when I was 14. And if I weren't a pastor, I'd be a church history teacher. But if you know anything about church history, you know that every time the church has gotten in bed with government, it got pregnant. And it was a, it was a bad situation. And today there are people who would more likely say, well, I'm of Apollos. Well, mm -hmm. I'm of Paul. And that factionalism, I can't tell you how many hundreds of pastors I've counseled this last year who are seeing the worst conflict in their churches since in America in the, since the Civil War. Uh, and, and that's that's tragic. Uh, but there, there's a lot of that going on. And uh, we have to really remember that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation, that we are to be peacemakers. How, how do you think that happened? I mean, that could be a whole podcast in and of itself. But I mean, you've been around for the whole run from the moral majority through to the 90s, the 2000s. I mean, you've seen different administrations come and go, and you've counseled presidents. So where do you think the line got crossed? Well, I think you hit it. I think you, you hit it. In 1980, the moral majority was formed, and it was the first of what has been a 40-something year progression where many Christians started putting their faith in government to change society rather than the church. Well, friend, that's not going to work. You, you, you don't change people by laws. There's no law that's going to turn a bigot, a racist into a lover. In fact, the whole book of Romans teaches the law doesn't work for that. You need the law for people who aren't going to change, but it doesn't change motives. It doesn't change attitudes. Only Jesus can do that. If I thought that you could change society by passing laws, I would have become a politician. 
because I'm interested in changing society. But you, you can't change them without changing the heart. And that's a Jesus thing. Governments can't love. Governments can't transform. Uh, now, l- let me say this. People say, well, are you against government? No, I'm not against government. I am against partisanism. And, and you know, I, I besides Billy Graham, I think I'm the only guy who's prayed for both the Republican president inauguration and a Democrat. For I did it for Bush and I did it for Obama. And the reason why is because I have friends on both sides. I, when I first became a pastor, the first thing I did was register as an independent uh, so, so that I, I wouldn't be co-opted. I have been invited many times to um, speak for, or pray at a Democrat or Republican convention. And I've always turned it down because I see those as partisan. I would do a, a national event that involved everybody, but I would not do a partisan event. And, and here's the problem. Pastors now get typically an hour to influence their flock each week, but they're getting three hours of opinion every single night on cable news. Okay. You're not going to win against that. Okay. There are, there is no news station anymore. They're not news. They're three hours of opinion. And the other night I decided that I was going to watch the opposing channels and just compare. And so I watched, I taped one. I watched two hours of one well-known channel, and it was all uh, stereotyping and negativism and attacking and belittling, and they're the enemy. And then uh, I I watched uh, the other one, and it was the same thing, just on the other side. Mm. And and they were both both opinionated. Years ago, years ago, uh, I think this is the 80s, Jerry Falwell Sr. invited me to come preach and do a seminar at Liberty. And so he's in a suit and I'm in a, in a Hawaiian shirt. But for that day, I, I showed up in a suit and he wore a Hawaiian shirt, which was hilarious because <laughs> it was okay to be cool to wear it in the eighties. But anyway, um, we're sitting for dinner afterwards. And, and I said, Jerry, you've raised an awful lot of money. What did you do? He said, the quickest way to raise money is get an enemy. Mm. And I thought, Wow. Wow. You know, that, and, and, that, and networks are doing that now. They're raising money by belittling the other side. You can count, this is not, that's not new, but it's gotten more bitter. Uh, I mean, politics has always been, they speak about it in ap- uh, apocalyptic terms. In other words, if the other guy wins, the world's going to end. That, uh, that, that's as long as we, we've ever heard. So the other guy wins, it's going to end. Well, I've done a study of, of read through the gospels hundreds of times. And I can only find two political statements of Jesus. I don't, he, he, somebody asked me the other day in an interview, how, what did Jesus say about politics? I said, almost nothing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Almost nothing. And I said, uh, the two things he said would number one, give to Caesar, the things that are Caesar's and give to God, the things that are God. Okay. Pay your taxes. There's nothing in scripture that says taxes should be higher or lower. So don't try to make a case out of it. All right. But the second thing is when he was asked a political question by Paul, he said, well, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. This is not our fight. This is not our fight. There are moral issues. We have a fight, but it's not a political fight. And we also use different weapons than the world does, as as Paul says. So I'm, I'm, grieving. I really am grieving that well-meaning Christians have drunk the Kool-Aid and have seen 
their primary identity as this side or that side or this conspiracy theory or that or whatever. And it's going to take, it's not going to change overnight, but it, it, yeah. but my hope is the next generation. Some of the research we've just finished up uh, asking pastors about some of their concerns and challenges uh, shows that three out of four Protestant leaders say they're concerned about Christian nationalism in our nation right now. One in four say that they're not, which is an interesting thing. I'd love you to sort of speak to that. And how would you recommend leaders think about discipling when it comes to politics, given sort of the challenges that you've, that you've recognized, like the yeah. digital, the influence of the digital space and media yeah, yeah. is so profound today. How do we take the venom out of, uh, out of our veins and really uh, exude the kind of Christian yeah. discipleship that we need? Well, you've asked multiple questions there, but Dave is typical. You're on, you're on the money and because you use the word discipleship. It's all, all of these issues are discipleship issues. Racism is a discipleship issue. Financial overspending is a discipleship issue. Uh, political stereotyping bias uh, is, is a discipleship issue. Every one of these show our failure to disciple people uh, as they should be brought into the full measure of Christ, Christ's likeness. And so uh, you have to teach your way out of every problem. You have to teach your way out of every problem. And, and uh, you just plant seeds and you keep doing in, in a lot of these, though, particularly uh, the key, for instance, I believe the answer to, to racism is storytelling. Um, when you hear people's stories, it changes people. For instance, this last year, you know, we, we're, we're, we're a multicultural church. As I said, we speak 168 languages, but I'm sure there's still racism in our members in, in our church. I'm sure of that because Churches are made up of human beings. And if they don't have racism, which I, John Perkins is a dear friend, he said, I don't even use that word because it's, it's like the N word for white people. And he's, you know, you just, you just stereotype them. So, but there, everybody has preferences and everybody has biases and everybody has fears. So this last year when Ahmaud Arbery died and when George Floyd died and that whole run of young black men uh, were being murdered. And Breonna Taylor. Breonna Taylor. That's exactly right. Um, you know, our church went and marched. But uh, but here's the interesting thing. Uh, the first thing I did is I brought all my African-American staff together on a Zoom call. And I said, okay, guys, I need you to be gut level with me. And I, I need you to know what you're feeling about all this that's going on. And I need you to tell me instances of where you felt demeaned or belittled or, or not even just appreciated, not about a, 10 years ago, but in our church right now, right, right now. What, what have you, where have you seen vestiges of this in, in our church? And um, again, we could do a whole session just on, mm -hmm. on this one. Uh, that meeting lasted two and a half hours. It was excruciatingly painful, it, but it was beautiful. It was real. It was authentic. We wept together. We shared together. It was true koinonia. Uh, it, there was healing, uh, but it was tough. And so then I said, okay, at the end, I said, guys, now I need you to take another step of courage. You, you did it with me, but I'm a pretty safe guy. Um, I need you to share everything you just shared with our entire staff. 
we were having staff meetings every day on Zoom uh, to hold everybody together in the early days of COVID. Then we went to two times a week. And then in the fall this year, we went to once a week. But in that time, we were still doing multiple days. And um, so we brought them on. I've got 500 staff. And so they're all on Zoom and they shared their stories. And what happened was what I expected to happen. It broke the hearts of everybody else. Mm. It broke everybody's heart. And they were going, I had no idea. And my elders, I invited the elders to be on those calls. One guy who's a, a black guy who's one of my pastors of a church, one of our campuses. Uh, he said, you know, Rick, uh, a while back I was up at Universal Studios and we were, uh, you know, just hanging out. I was hanging out with four or five black guys and we were standing in front of a restaurant there on City Walk. And the owner evidently didn't like it. And he called the cops on us. The police came over and arrested us for loitering. And do you think it would have been that happened if it was five white guys or six white guys? And he said they put cuffs on us and, and started marching us in front of everybody over to the police station. And I said, uh, my, my cuffs are a little tight. Can you loosen them? And the guy hit me on the head and knocked my cap off and said, just shut up and be quiet. So we get in there. And then he said, we got to see some ID. When I showed him that I was not only uh, a reserve officer in the Air Force, but a pastor of Saddleback Church, they said, oh, we're sorry, you can go. That's blatant racism. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and, and for people to hear that, and I, I said, you know, guys, nobody likes to be driving down the street and a red light turns on and you get pulled over. We all get nervous when we have a, a, a encounter with uh, law enforcement. But I said, you know, I, I've never worried that I was going to be thrown on the ground. I've never worried that I was going to be shot, that I might lose my life. I've never worried about driving while black. And, and so I, I just, we need to learn the, these kind of things. Well, then the elders came on and they repented publicly and said, uh, one, one of my elders said, you know, AC, he's my pastor of Saddleback LA, black guy. AC, I've known you for 15 years. Not one time have we talked about race. I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, we're friends. We're close friends. But this has been like an off-limit issue. And I, uh, uh, one of my staff members said, you know, I'm a, uh, a, a black woman in an all-women's white Bible study. I said, I have a son the age of Ahmaud Aubrey, And when he died, I felt it. Not one of those women asked me, how does this make you feel? You know, it's, it's all about empathy. It's all about sharing stories. And so then we opened it up. We ended up with 17 and a half recorded hours of staff meeting. Wow. Uh, over seven uh, different staff meetings, just about sharing about racial pain. And of course, I've got Asians and I've got Vietnamese and Middle Eastern and, and all this. And that was very powerful. Then the next thing I did is I did an online Zoom for all the black members of Saddleback Church. And I had them all, and I said, and I did the exact thing. I need you to tell me your stories. Where where are you feeling uh, uh, bias or slighted or insensitivity or whatever? And again, it was tough, but it was beautiful. And I've done a second one since then. And then the other thing I did was um, I, I did a, a call for uh, police officers, law enforcement in our church. And I brought them all on. And I knew that was going to be the toughest of all, because there is a, a line of defending everything because we feel like we're under attack all the time anyway. 
and I challenged them. And they didn't, some of them didn't like what I said. Most of them said, you're right, pastor. We have seen racism uh, in our midst, but others just wouldn't go there. But I, I, I wouldn't back down on it. I just said, guys, I love you, but you're, you're not going to have the respect until you stop being silent when something happens. I'm so glad you raised that, Rick. And one of the, the topics that we've navigated on this podcast over the last year has been pastors are actually, according to Barna Data, are showing a little more reluctance to talk about uh, racial injustice than they were pre-pandemic, largely because of what you said earlier, well, there's some issues, one of them is racism, but the other is, Rick, it's just too difficult. Like, it's so conflicted and people get mad and I have elders who are arguing with me uh, and members who say they're going to leave or that this is all about, this is just politics. It's politics 201 in, in, in a different guise. What would you say to those leaders who would say, I'd love to be able to do what you did, but there's just so much flack and tension, Rick. What, what would you say to them? Well, the only way, you can't speak the truth until you have trust. All true, all tr- leadership is built on trust. If people don't trust you, they're not going to follow you. So your credibility is the most important thing. Before you can give people the truth, you got to show them that you love them. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Trust is built on feeling like that guy loves me. That, that guy loves me. He genuinely, he, lo- he, he loves me warts and all. He's not going to walk out on me. Uh, he, he's going to, he's, he's going to be a pastor. He's going to be patient with me. He's going to shepherd and care. And so I was able to do those things because I have a long track record of loving people. My people know that I love them. They, they know I genuinely love them, um, that I've given 41 years of my life, laying down my life for the sheep. Um, you can fake love for a couple of years. You can't fake it for 41. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, either, either people figure out you either mean it or you don't. Mm-hmm. And, and so I would say before you start with a controversial issue, right. you need to put some credits in your pocket. By, by building love and showing love and showing respect uh, and listening. P- you listen to them. Listen to them, and then they'll listen to you. That's an important first step. One of the things, uh, being largely California-based, most of your people would be in California. You've had some of the tightest restrictions in uh, the nation over the last year. So uh, in-person reopening hasn't really been uh, a, a strong possibility for you. So you've led a virtual staff, virtual teams, virtual church, virtual locations. What are you learning about the about that dynamic over the last year? What what is good? What is what what has to change? And because so many people, I think you're right. You've already hinted at this, Rick. That you're like there are people who say, "Well, we lost that hour on Sunday. Until we get it back, there's not much we can do." Yeah. And no, you can, you've got four other purposes to work on that you uh-huh. could be you could be working on. You may not be able to have group worship, but you can do a lot of other stuff. Um, we Saddleback may be the only church in America that has more people in small groups than on the weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we had when we started this year, we had over six thousand small groups. I have typically on a weekend, I was having about thirty thousand people uh, at our services. Uh, but during the week, we had about 45,000 in 6,000 small groups spread out over 192 cities uh, spread all out. 
Well, when, uh, when the governor of California announced you can't have church right now, I, I said, now, you know what? There will be smaller churches that can open up before we do. We'll, we'll probably be the, I said, the last thing to open in Orange County will be Disneyland and Saddleback. Hmm. Okay. Oh, cause we're the two biggest things, which by the way, we have both been chosen to be super sites for vaccines. And, wow. and, uh, we're going to, we're going to be vaccinating probably, I don't know. They think they can do 50,000 a week because of our size. But bottom line is I said, we're, we're, we're not, we're going to, we're going to be grateful for other churches that can open up before we do. That's okay. We love them. We're happy for them. We're not jealous of them. We're all on the same team. But but the very sheer size, we could be a super spreader because there's so so many of yeah. us. But so anyway, we had these six thousand uh, small groups. I started preaching at the end of every message. If you're not in a small group, you're not going to make it through this COVID at the level of energy and and comfort and support that you need. So you need to get in group. We started fifteen hundred new small groups. <laughs> Okay. And, and so we, when, when the small, when the church couldn't meet, we just met in small groups. And then the governor came and said, you can't meet in small groups. And so then we went to online and we've been doing online since now there are some groups that are doing online, but then they also go meet outside. Okay. And, and they'll be like that. So we're, we're letting them do that. The future Here's one of the things we know. God's in control. He wasn't surprised by this. He's not worried about his church. The church has survived every dictator, every war, every pandemic. In fact, most people don't know this, that the reason Christianity spread so greatly were the two great pandemics of the second and third century. There was the Augustinian uh, pandemic and there was the Cyprian pandemic. And both of those, when there were plagues that came into the Roman Empire, people began to flee the cities in masses because they, they didn't know about germs or viruses. Uh, and they just thought maybe it's the urban area that's, that's killing us. So millions of people began to leave. It was at that point Christians began to move into the city to care for the dying. They moved into the urban areas to care for the dying. And in inventing a new way of caring for the dying and showing hospitality, they invented what became the hospital. Hmm. Most people don't know this. We invented the hospital, not government, not business. The Christians church invented the hospital. That's why most of them say St. Mary, St. Mark, St. Matthews more, more than anything. Why? Three times, twice in scripture, it says Jesus went into every village preaching, teaching, and healing. One third of his ministry was healthcare. He didn't just care about the mind or the body. He cared about the soul, all three. He, we don't want to just get people into heaven. We want to educate them. That's why when people say, are you pro-life? I said, no, I'm not pro-life. I'm whole life. Okay. I, don't, I want that little baby to be, that little girl to be born, but I also want her to get an education, to not be abused, to not be mistreated, to have equal rights. I, you know, I, I want her to grow up and be what God wants her to be. So the bottom line on this was that, in, in healthcare, since Christians have a history of preaching, teaching, and healing, you go into any country in the world, the first school, the first higher education, and the first hospital where every one of them were started by missionaries, every single one of them around the world. 
we know more about education and healthcare than anybody, so we don't have to back down. But going back to your question, we are in a transition, and and what everybody's used to Zoom now. Right. This is going to open up enormous opportunities. You know, every time God's word has been put in a new technology, revival has come as a result. When, when Gutenberg invented the printing press, God didn't give us the printing press for pornography. He gave it to us to spread the word. And, and the Bible, obviously, was the first thing that was printed. Uh, God's word was printed. What most people don't know is that during 50 years later, we had the Reformation because of the printing press. It wouldn't have ever happened without the printing press. Most people don't know that Luther, every two weeks, wrote a new tract. And then they would mass print them and produce them, and they flooded Europe with his tracts. That's how the Reformation happened. It wouldn't have happened without the technology. Every time we got, we got the telephone, then we got the radio, then we got TV, then we got the Internet. Now, we, now we're showing a way to use the Internet in Zoom and apps and all kinds of ways, which allow me to sit here, talk to you guys today, and uh, this afternoon, talk to a group of pastors in Europe, and you know, tomorrow morning, talk to a group of pastors in Asia or wherever. And, and so while th there's a real downside to social media, there's a real upside to the fact that th this pandemic made an awful lot of Christians tech users. One of the um, discussion points that's come up, because you mentioned that, that you know, no government, we've survived dictators, we've survived revolutions, we've survived pandemics, etc. But any thoughts about the pastors who are saying, hey, the government's trying to suppress the church by not allowing us open, or now there's a conversation about, well, we're going to get shut down on YouTube or social media accounts because we're Christians. Anything you want to say into that space to those who are worried that freedoms are being curtailed on like in a, in a discriminatory way. Yeah. Yeah. I totally reject that uh, idea. And the very fact that people tried to politicize a pandemic is just dumb. Uh, this is a safety issue, not a first amendment issue. Now you might have a case if everything else opened up except the church. Mm. Okay. But we're not being discriminated against. There, we went an entire football season. Sporting events are shut down. There are no concerts going on. Theaters are shut down. Restaurants in Southern California are shut down. Uh, and so you can go on and on. If we were the only ones, yeah, I would be the first to raise my hand and say, we're being discriminated against. This is not a discrimination issue. This is a healthcare issue. And the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself. The most practical way right now you can love your neighbors yourself, wear a mask. Mm. Okay. And, and, and to not wear one basically says, I don't care about you or I don't even care about your fears. You could be the, the, the serious thing about this virus. And I know all these leaders. I, I knew the head of the CDC, mm. uh, Bob Redfield, and I, I knew Debbie Burks and I knew, uh, and I know um, uh, Francis Collins, head of the, National Institute of they're all good Christian peoples. And we I worked with them for years on other pandemics around the world, and particularly AIDS. Uh, Bob Redfield, who was the head of the CDC during this last year, came to Rwanda and built the program that Saddleback introduced in Rwanda's being copied 
uh, in the peace plan in different places. These are good people. They're not partisan politicians. They're not trying to, it's not socialism in disguise. We're trying to shut you down. Uh, they're, they're just trying to be careful. And love your neighbors yourself means, uh, well, I said, what's insidious about this is that you could be a carrier and have no symptoms. Hmm. Okay, that's that's a problem. I, I could carry it and, and not have symptoms. And so when I don't wear a mask, I'm gambling without knowing that, that I'm safe, that I'm not harming you. Now, let me just say this, because every pastor's had what I've had. I've had enormous pressure to reopen the church hmm. from my own members, not from everybody, but from pretty much the people who are watching those three hours every night on TV. Okay. And they're pressuring, why aren't we reopening? Why aren't we reopening? And I'm going, wait a minute, we're winning more people to Christ than ever before. We got more people in groups than ever before. We've got a great ministry to uh, seekers out there in, in through food. Uh, all these different things are going on. What are you problem? What's the problem? We've baptized more people. Uh, but when they say the pressure's on, I say this. As a pastor, God has called me not just to feed the flock, but to protect it. And that means protecting it physically as well as emotionally and spiritually. I will one day stand before God and give an account of my leadership to him. How well I shepherded this flock. Did I protect the sheep that God put in the stewardship of me? I couldn't imagine going to heaven and saying that I let people, members die because I had such an ego, I needed a crowd to speak to. I'm not willing to gamble the health of my members to nurse my ego that would like to have a live audience, okay? And I said, so I'm not willing to accept that responsibility. But then I said, are you? Those of you members who want me to reopen, are you willing to expect, accept the responsibility to stand before God one day? I had three members die this week of COVID. Okay, without services, no telling what could happen. Are you willing to accept responsibility for the death of a brother or sister in our family? And you, you have to control the controllables, but trust God for what you can't control. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how long this, is, this, this virus is going to last. We, we really don't. You can A lot do longer than we thought it would. Mm -hmm. Certainly. You can do scenario planning. But here's, here's something I do have control over. The amount of time I spend with God. Mm. I, I have complete control over that. And one of the things I've been teaching pastors this last year is a habit that I've been doing every day since COVID started. Uh, and we all talk about a quiet time. Yeah, that's good. But here's another one. It's a habit I call HWFW and uh, HW. LW, his word, first word, and his word, last word. Hmm. What I do is I'd say, get a translation of the Bible that you like to read. Set it by your bedside, right by your bed, and open it up and never close it. A closed Bible is easier to ignore than an open one. Leave it open. Pick a book, the Gospels, Philippians, Proverbs, Psalms, just doesn't matter. Pick a book. When you get up in the morning, before you even get out of bed, you sit on the side of your bed, you don't look at your phone first. You don't look 
don't listen to the radio. You don't turn on the TV. You don't read a newspaper. You don't fill your mind with bad news. Before you do anything else, before you get out of bed, you grab that Bible and you start reading. And you read until something speaks to you. Okay. Say, how long do I read? It doesn't matter. Just till something speaks to you. It may be one verse. It may be 15 verses before you get something. You look for something that challenges you or you look for something that comforts you. Both of those will feed your soul. Something that comforts you or something that challenges you. And when you get to a verse that either comforts or challenges you, maybe you only read one verse, you stop. And you say, I need to think about that. I've memorized many of those verses this past year. I just say, I need to think about that verse. And then I get up his word, first word. I fill my mind with truth before I do anything else. And then at the end of the day, when I get ready to go to bed, the last thing I do right before I put my head down on the pillow is I, that Bible's sitting there open. I've left it open and I start with the next verse and I keep reading until something challenges me or comforts me. Challenge or comfort, both will work, both will feed your soul. And then I go, I'm going to go to sleep thinking about that. And I put my head down. This is he restoreth my soul. Hmm. He gives the word revives the weary heart, scripture says. And so what, what we have is people not getting enough input or getting the wrong kind of input. If I listen to three hours of TV a day and I, I, you know, spend nothing in the word, well, of course I'm going to be drained. And, and so that's an important thing is to do that. But here's, let me give you another one because just as important as the word, every pastor needs to schedule a daily connection with people you love. Every pastor needs to schedule a daily connection with people. You refill your cup by connecting with, with people you love. Now, obviously, we can't do that with safe distancing, but you can do it with technology. You can do it with Zoom. You can do it with uh, Skype. You can do it with FaceTime. I think seeing like me looking at your faces right now, that's far better than just you know audio uh, because we can see each other. We can read each other's emotions. But you need to connect with people. Now, here's the interesting thing. By the way, this is what Paul did. He, he did letter writing. You know, while he's quarantined in the Roman uh, prison, chained to a guard 24 hours a day, what's he do? He writes to his friends. Well, I'm glad he did that. We got the Bible out of it. Uh, but um, here's an interesting fact. The latest research on this shows that it your brain... Um, it doesn't need a lot of time to be encouraged. When you call somebody on the phone, the most important encouragement comes in the first 30 seconds. Hmm. A, a phone call doesn't have to be 20 minutes with somebody you love. It doesn't have to be 30 minutes. A two-minute phone call does wonders for lifting people's moods. In fact, as I said, most of the power, most of the encouragement, most of the benefit comes in the first 30 seconds. The fact that you called is an encouragement. Hmm. So as a pastor, you don't have to make these long phone calls to people you love. Uh, just call and say, I just wanted to say, hi, I love you. How you doing? Praying for you, you know, and, and I, we, we, one of the two new ministries we set up actually revived them. They were, we started them years ago and then let them die. One's called care callers, one called care writers. My, the people who want to serve the most in our church are the 
the people who are retired. They've got all the time on their hands. They don't have little kids at home. And yet those are the people I needed to protect the most during COVID. I said, I know you serve, you've served for years, you're faithful, but I need you to stay home. So we're going to invent a thing called care callers. And I'm going to give you a roster and you call through this list members and just say, Rick asked me to call and see how you're doing. Mm. How are you doing? You need anything? Can we bring you some food, toilet paper, you know, what, whatever you need, you're kind of, so we turned shut-ins into ambassadors. And, and we also, if you don't like to phone, well, we'll give you some people to write notes to. And we start care writers. And right now I have over 900 care callers and care writers who've contacted who knows how many people. Rick, you know, it has been, you've kind of mentioned opportunity, but I'd love for you to kind of review the kind of year you've had at Saddleback, because here we are unable to reopen, you know, under the tightest restrictions in the nation. So tell us what's, what's happened. Well, you know, everything we do, um, you know, we try to base it on some kind of scripture, obviously, because uh, if a principle is biblical, it's transcultural. Hmm. It means it'll work anywhere. American methods only work in America. German methods work in Germany. Japanese methods work in Japan. But, but if you get a biblical principle, uh, it's transcultural. You can, you can use it anywhere. And everything that we do at Saddleback is actually based on uh, a number of principles. But one of them is the principle of the parable of the sower. Hmm. And in that, Jesus is unlocking for us uh, uh, a very important truth for ministry you know, you you guys have all taught this that you know the four soils represent four hearts, right. and uh, you know the shallow soil is the the shallow heart, the hard soil is the resistant heart, the the soil with weeds is the busy, preoccupied heart, and the good soil is the good heart. If that is true, and of course it is because Jesus preached it, um, then at any given moment in your life three out of four people aren't open to what you want to share. Wow. Okay. You just need to understand this. At any given moment, only 25% of the population is receptive. Uh, so that's, that's okay. Now, uh, uh, I am not responsible for making soil receptive. That's the Holy Spirit's job. My job as a good farmer is to plant the maximum amount of seed where the best soil is and, and see the results and not waste seed on, uh, on unresponsive soil. Uh, that's a really important principle of stewardship. Uh, don't waste your seed on, on unresponsive soil. It's God's job to make the person responsive and it's our job to sow the seed. So how does God turn hard soil into soft soil? He sends a storm. Okay, he sends a storm. He batters it with a storm. And rain uh, softens the hardest desert, the hardest heart. People are most likely to receive Christ when they're in transition or under tension. In transition or under tension. When major change is going on, it can be a good one or a bad one. It could be uh, just got married, just had a baby, just graduated, just got a new job, just moved to a new area. Or it can be a negative death, divorce, disease, you know, chronic uh, loved one dies. Bankruptcy. Uh, all, all those get their attention. Now, uh, what I'm telling pastors uh, during this season is you will grow a church even in COVID 
if you will stop trying to focus on everybody. Just fo- You will build a church for the rest of your life if you'll just focus on people in pain. Just focus, on, and there are plenty of them out there. It's not my job to take that 75-year-old resistant dude in Pasadena who's lived there for 30 years and already decided that he's going to church or not and try to convince him. No, no, I'm just going to wait until God softens his soil because one day his wife's going to die. And then all of a sudden I've got his attention. Now, there are social factors that soften the soil. We're seeing them, five major storms this last year, five major storms um, socially, but then they're just personal stuff that happens in people's life. And if you teach your members to look for people in pain, see this last year, it wasn't just our banner year for evangelism. Over 16,000 people gave their lives to Christ at Saddleback in 2020. But here's the amazing thing. Almost, well, over 12,000 of them did it through one-on-one witnessing. Wow. The personal, the personal evangelism of my members. Uh, uh, did that. Why? Because we trained them to look for people in pain, to be there in pain, and to share uh, in pain. And, you know, I don't do much of the baptizing anymore because I got a staff, but this last year, I personally baptized over a thousand people, just me, during during COVID. Uh, so we had we had about four or five thousand people accept Christ through our online services, but far more through personal evangelism. Two to three times more people coming to Christ through, hey, can I help you in your pain? You know, can I help you one-on-one? So it's just look for people in pain. Now, uh, you know, I said uh, there's five storms. Okay, here, here, here are the five storms we had. We had uh, what I call the global infirmity. That's COVID, the global infirmity, pandemic. I, I, I've been involved in pandemics in the past. We were involved in AIDS for 20 years uh, when it was a big pandemic. And viruses mutate just like AIDS did, global infirmity, social um, instability. We saw cities in in Mm -hmm. rioting and and all kinds of stuff. Cities, social instability, racial inequality. And we went through those series of deaths of young black men, uh, which is a big deal for my church because I think we're probably the most diverse church in America. We speak 168 languages at Saddleback. I don't think any church beats that. I've got 20 black pastors on my staff. Of my of my 20 campuses, most of them aren't white guys. They're Indian, they're Asian, they're Vietnamese, they're Middle East, they're African American. Uh, you know, it's a uh, we're we're United Nations. But uh, racial inequality, financial uh, instability, okay, financial uh, insecurity, uh, and then political incivility with the questioned election and stuff like that. Any one of those create pain, but five of them dumped on us at once uh, were really the, the, you know, the precursor that allowed us to, to reap a huge harvest this year. And uh, one of my pastors, my executive pastor, is on a call with the largest churches in America every other week. And he said, you know, Rick, Every one of those guys, they always keep talking about, they're so anxious. How do we get the church back open? How do we get the community back into the church? And that's all they're talking about. How do we get the community back into the church? I go, no, 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 we're going to do the exact opposite. How do we get the church into the community? Okay, Okay. how do we get the church into the community? We've been closed 
How, how is it that you have your, your greatest effective year evangelism and you don't have a public worship service for over a year? Huh? How, do you, how is that possible? Well, it's the same possibility as the first 300 years of Christianity where there were no church buildings and there weren't public worship services. And yet it was the greatest period of growth in the church. It's, you get the church into the community. So we made a list early on of, um, I said, let's make a list of the 10 deepest needs in society right now you know, based on these things. And then we'll just go start new ministries for them. Uh, the first one was uh, food, you know, pe people. A lot of people were living hand to mouth. They lose their job. They, they needed food. And uh, Saddleback has three food pantries. We typically, on a typical month, feed a couple thousand families a month that are out of work. But the first month, last March, we fed 45,000 the first month. And so I go, this isn't going to work. We got to invent a new way to do food banks. We got to create, be creative and innovate. And so 126 food banks in Southern California closed during COVID, 126. So we went out and we started a thing called pop-up food banks, where we partnered with all the schools, the Board of Education, the Board of Supervisors, and, all, and we said, we'll come to you. And we started over 400 pop-up sites. And the report I got yesterday, let me read this. Um, okay. Over 13,000 of our members have fed over 8 million pounds of food to 552,000 families. Wow. We're now the number one food distributor in Southern California. Saddleback Church is the number one food distributor in Southern California. Well, then we just said, teach them how to share their faith. Well, all those people come through. My worship leader, John Cassetto, the other day said, I led a 50-year-old Buddhist couple to Christ. Tell me about it. So well, I was out in the food lines, one of the food pantries, and a couple came up, and, and uh, we gave them the food. They said, well, what is this? And he said, well, it's actually a church. I said, a church? Yeah. He said, have you ever heard of Jesus? Well, we heard of him, but don't know any about him. And so he explained the gospel and said, would you guys like to get to know him. Oh yeah, that, this sounds great. And <laughs> he, he led a couple of Buddhists to Christ right there, <laughs> sitting in their car with their mask on and his mask on. And, man, oh man. Yeah. Well, Rick, so, that's quite a year. Yeah. Yeah. Part, part of it is, um, uh, I, I think we really were prepared for this, uh, in ways that maybe some other churches weren't because we, because of this philosophy based on go after people in pain, we are alert to any disaster. Hmm. This is actually the 33rd national or international disaster we've been a part of. So I actually have a guy on staff called the pastor of disaster. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think a lot of churches. Yeah. yeah. Some that's the senior pastor is the pastor yeah. of disaster, but it's a different meaning. <laughs> yeah. But uh, we, we look, for people in pain. I mean, when Katrina hit, it hit on a Friday. I got up on Sunday morning and said, guys, we got to help these people. There were over 6,000 churches in our network alone, in the PD network, that were hit by Katrina. Uh, and 400 of them totally lost their buildings. 400 churches totally lost. It. Most of them were small, rural, African-American churches. So I said, we got to help these people. And uh, 
so I said, let's take up an offering. And, and on that day, our people gave 1.7 million cash. Wow. I get on a plane and the next day I go to Baton Rouge, uh, Houston, Memphis, and where else? One other place, somewhere, maybe Mobile. I can't remember. Uh, I gather all the pastors in the area. I say, okay, you're going to not have time for sermon prep this next year. You're going to have to help people muck out their homes. So here's a year's a free sermon. Let me tell you how to deal with the emotional after effect of this. And, and really, that's what I'm more interested in in, uh, in, in, in uh, COVID-19. While the, while the doctors are working on the disease, uh, it's our job as church leaders to work on the dis-ease. The, the stress that's being caused by all these changes in society, rapid changes and all these storms, we're, we're to work on the dis-ease. And I'm telling you guys, you can write this down and take it to the bank. This next year and even after that, there's going to be a tsunami of grief. Um, you said uh, when we started this, just as a joke before we started recording, that this has been, like a lot of people, busiest year of your life, busiest year of your ministry. And I can see why. You've been really personally engaged when you do that much work. Yeah. Um, you know, personally engaging people and 17 hours of Zoom on yeah. justice alone, yeah. et cetera. How, how has the pandemic impacted you personally? Well, as I said, my schedule has been uh, uh, much more difficult uh, because you're holding together a, a church uh, without uh, corporate gatherings. Mm. But part of it, part of it is is being purpose driven. Means we have five purposes, not one. And I understand why a lot of guys are anxious to get back because if all you've got is a worship service and you take that away. You're up a creek without a paddle, uh, but we don't have one purpose. We have five. We have worship, fellowship, discipleship, ministry, and evangelism. And while although the public worship was shut down, we've been going great guns on the other four. We've done more ministry, more discipleship, uh, more fellowship, albeit online. Uh, you know these, and more evangelism. Uh, and so, when you're purpose driven and you balance all five you could lose a purpose for a period of time and it doesn't, it doesn't cut you down. If you're a one purpose church, we have a worship service. Well, you know, then, then yes, of course, you're going to want to get back to that worship service as soon as possible. Our budget was, a, I mean, our giving was above budget this year and we never took an offering. Why? Well, we had already had like 50, 60, I think 67% were already given online. And, and uh, you know, and so it, it, this is stuff that you have to, I, I can show a church, I can show anybody how to build a church to go through a crisis, but I can't show them how to do it fast. It, it, it took me 40 years. Okay. <laughs> it's like the stuff that we're doing, I'm going, it's like pie in the sky to most pastors because they go, well, how'd you get there? Well, it took me 40 years of loving them and, and, and sacrificing for them and, and being there. When you have integrity, it gets better every year. When you don't, it gets worse every year. And, and then, then you eventually have to leave. But for me personally, my biggest concern has been maintaining the emotional health of me and my staff. And, and, and so um, while I'm uh, last March, or no, last May, 
uh, and while I was going through James, I did a message. There's a verse in Romans that says, keep yourself fueled in a flame. Okay, don't give up. It's in the message paraphrase, but don't burn out. Keep yourself fueled in a flame. Don't quit in hard times, but pray all the more. And I said, how do you keep yourself fueled in a flame? Here's the problem with pastors who are listening. You are being drained emotionally every day that this crisis continues. Mm. If you've got a battery and you got one light bulb and you attach it to it, it'll last a long time. If you attach two batteries, it'll burn out in half the time. If you attach four batteries, I mean, four, it's not light two batteries, yeah. two light bulbs. If you attach four light bulbs to the battery, it's going to burn out in a quarter of the time. Pastors don't have one light bulb. They got multiple light bulbs, so they're burning out. And, and I will say this to those who are listening. Some of you came into this um, pandemic with a full tank. And if you can work at home and you can broadcast your service online and you can do online from home, you're probably doing okay. You're obviously tired, but you're probably doing okay. Some pastors came into this thing already half empty in their tank. Yeah. And and they're, they're running on empty now. And then there are other people who came into this last year with nothing in their tank. They were already drained. Those are the people I care about most. And those are the people I've spent most of my time with this year. I'm either working with our church or coaching and counseling pastors who are, who are struggling with, with uh, burnout. I did a message called, I called them the 10 COVID commandments. And it's basically uh, 10 things to do to keep yourself emotionally refreshed and restored and recharged. I do them all myself. Uh, I've probably taught that message a dozen times. I taught it uh, to a Lutheran group this last week. I taught it to Vineyard Pastors the week before. I taught it to a group of pastors in the Philippines the same week. And, and because that's what everybody's needing. Hmm. They're all needing, how do I keep my reserves? You know, people say, well, we're all in the same boat. We aren't. We're all in the same storm, but we're not on the same boat. Some people are going through this crisis in a yacht. Okay. And if you got a nice home and you can work from home and your job isn't threatened, you're, you're okay. Some people going through it in a rowboat, they lost their job and they don't have any paddles. And some people, they're just holding on to a piece of driftwood. Hmm. How, how do you shelter at home when you're homeless? Hmm. You know, those are people we have to care about. One of the important things I would say right off the bat to pastors is this. Show yourself and others grace. Okay. Show grace to yourself uh, and, and others. In other words, you need to start treating yourself the way God does. You know, God treats you graciously. He treats you with mercy. If you get up in the morning and you've had a good night's sleep and an hour or two or into the day, you're going, man, I'm exhausted. Welcome to the human race. Yeah. Okay. E everybody is. Everybody's exhausted because change drains. And, and so just humbly admit, God, I need your help. And, and one, of the, uh, one of the things that I'm trying to teach pastors how to do is to set and stick with a simple routine. Very important when you're going through times where everything is changing. Uh, routine develops resilience. 
routine develops resilience. Predictability creates stability. Hmm. All right. In other words, structure, structure creates steadiness. And so what you need to do is set a, 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 a amount of work that's reasonable for you. No pastor should think that he or she could um, operate at the same level they were a year and a half ago. Okay, they just can't. That is stupid to even think so. You're not Superman, you're not Superwoman. And, and so you don't have 100% that you had a year and a half ago. And, and it'll come back, but right now, you, you, you give the Lord 100% of what you got. That's what you, Lord, this is what I got. And so you, you, it's when you're stuck at home, it's easy to slip into a sloppy routine, thoughtlessly stay up later than you should and sleep in and develop bad habits. And this is where you got to set and stick with a simple routine. And one of the keys that I teach guys is um, the principle of dosing and spacing. And what that is, is if you go to a doctor and you're sick and they give you medicine, you don't go home and swallow the whole bottle itself. You spread it out. You take those meds over time. You space them and, and you're dosing for maximum health. And I've taught a lot of pastors this last year to do that. I said, you know, if you get up in the morning, you go for a 45 minute walk. That's good. Okay. That's good. But if you, um, if you then sit down and set, spend eight hours in front of your screen, you just wasted the emotion. Physically, maybe you got some benefit, but the emotional part's gone. It would actually be better for you to get up and take five-minute breaks and walk around your neighborhood four or five times a day if you're at home, rather than doing them all at once. Uh, don't, don't do it all at once. Spread it out through the day. You go work about an hour and a half, then take a break. Work an hour and a half, take a break. And and, and uh, this is called dosing and spacing. It's yeah. it's uh, really some of the latest in neuroscience and things like that 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 work. Um, so I've got a staff member who told me that day. Brandon told me he said I'm doing a virtual commute. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, I'm working at home, and in order to put a bifurcation between my work life and my home life, when I finish my work for the day. I go outside and I walk for 15 minutes around my neighborhood. And I listen to a podcast, probably yours. Um, <laughs> I listen to a podcast or I just process the day. And then when I come home, I go inside. I've made a clear delineation between work life and home life. Mm. And, that, and that's an important thing. That is really important. David, do you have a question? that you wanted to ask Rick? Yeah, this is such a, a, a personal topic. Um, Rick, you might know my dad uh, led a church for many years in the Phoenix area. Yeah. Uh, one of my heroes as a leader. And um, so as we talk great, about- Great, great man. Yeah, Gary Kinnaman. And and so yeah. the um, the sustainability of, of leaders uh, is something that I think I've been really concerned about for many years. A big, big study called State of Pastors in our current study, just, just up to the minute, January 22nd through 27th, we asked uh, a sample of uh, pastors, have you given real serious consideration to quitting being in full-time ministry within the last year? And 29%, three in every 10 Protestant pastors. Some estimates have been a lot higher than that. I think mm -hmm. they, they were they were a little mm -hmm. overstated, but this is our most current, I think, pretty mm -hmm. accurate read of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so... <clears throat> Uh, we've just been talking a lot about how you know you're coaching into pastors to help them uh, be more resilient. What do you think are some of the opportunities for pastoral leadership coming out of this crisis? Like, what will pastoring yeah. look like 
how, how will we make sure we don't lose men and women who are considering quitting? Right. Um, right. And how do we, right. how do we find the, the kind of vision for pastoring in the future when the church looks so different than what we might've imagined signing up for? Yeah, it, it is going to look different. We're, we're in a major epoch, uh, uh, an epic shift. Uh, but um, here's the thing. You know, I've never been much of a futurist because I, I don't know what the future is going to hold. You know, I, I, you know, I'm it's we can make educated guesses. So what I encourage pastors to do is look at what's not going to change. OK, while other things are going to change, what's not going to change? Well, for instance, we know people are going to have the same problems. They're going to still get lonely. They're going to still feel guilty. They're going to have shame. Uh, they're going to worry. There's going to be anxiety. They're going to be fear. There's a lot of things we know about the future that's not going to change. Human nature is not going to change. But also, what's not going to change is your, your opportunity to have a deep relationship with Christ. So that no matter what goes on, you are building on the rock, not on, on sand. Um, and what I discovered is a lot of the, these pastors, and I agree with you, if it's three out of 10 that are ready to quit, it's nine out of 10 that are tired. Yeah. Maybe 10 out of 10. Okay. I don't know any pastor goes, oh, I'm not tired. Okay. Every pastor I know is tired. I have the philosophy, and I think you can see this in the ministry of Paul, opportunity plus obstacle uh, equals God's will. Okay, or even opportunity plus opposition equals God's will. Hmm. I've done I've done nothing in forty one years at Saddleback that wasn't hard. Uh, everything is hard. Okay, nothing's easy, uh, but it is to just keep on keeping on at whatever pace you are. And one of the uh, verses God gave me early on, you know, in the first year of the church. Uh, I didn't know how to pace myself. And when I started it, I was working 18 hours a day and the office was in my home and I was loving it. And the, the church grew from me to, I don't know, about 150 people the first year and, and 60, I baptized 60 and I was so excited. And on the last Sunday of the year, 1980, I stood up to speak and fainted, just <laughs> boom, fell over. And it was from sheer workaholism and exhaustion. And what happened after that, which was worse, is I developed a phobia that if I speak again, I will faint again. Mm -hmm. And for the next month, uh, I, I took a month off January of 81 and I went to the desert. I took Kay and my kids to Phoenix where her parents lived. And I went out to the desert and had a desert experience. And out there, there were a couple haunting fears going on. One of them was, uh, God, I, I, I don't deserve this. Uh, you're blessing me too much. Uh, for, for me, I grew up in little tiny churches. And to have 150 people in church was just overwhelming to me. It was overwhelming. And uh, I, I said, I have enough time being consistent, hard enough time being consistent in a quiet time, much less being a pastor. I know who I am. And you're blessing me more than I deserve. The second thing was, I can't handle it. it it's growing too fast. Uh, if it keeps growing at this pace, we'll be having several thousand people in a few years. <laughs> Little did I know. And out there in the desert, God said three things to me. He said, uh, number one, you're right, Rick, you don't deserve it. <laughs> 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 but it's all grace. 
It's all God's grace. Uh, I'm a trophy of grace. Grace is the fact that God knows every stupid mistake I'm going to make in ministry, and he chose me. Grace is the fact that God knows every dumb thing you're going to do in your ministry, pastor, and God chose you. You have not I, you have not called me. I have called you and ordained you that you would go and bear forth fruit. You were chosen by God. And if you're chosen, and he says, I put you into the ministry, you got to stay put until God chooses to do something else. So it's not a volunteer thing. It's a, you're put in the ministry. And uh, it's ministry is received, not achieved. You don't, you don't earn it. It's something you just relax in the grace of God. So he said, you're right. You don't deserve it. But nothing, I don't deserve to be saved, much less in the ministry. So everything God does in my life is by grace through faith. I put my faith in God's grace. The second thing the Lord said, and this goes back to Dave's question about how do you last in the ministry, is Jesus said, uh, by the way, Rick, whose church is it? And I said, well, Lord, it's your church, obviously. You said, I will build my church. He said, good answer. And I just imagined me getting up out of my chair in the pastoral office and saying, okay, Jesus, sit down. You're now the pastor of the church. It's not my church. And what that meant to me was, ultimately, it wasn't up to my creativity, my ingenuity, my hard work, my whatever, talent or whatever, to make this thing run. It was Jesus' church. And he would grow it at the rate and space that he wanted to. It, it wasn't my job. Out of those two convictions, that everything God does in my life is by grace, I never will deserve it. And number two, that ultimately he's responsible, not me, came the conviction that I am God's man with God's message for this church, and nothing can shake that from me. No, no, no criticism, and I have been criticized for 40 years. No um, misunderstanding, no, uh, no health problem, and I've had those. No pandemic, because my hope is not built on those things. And uh, we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, because the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so it, it all has to do with focus in, in keeping on keeping on. If you were to come into my office, you would see on the wall, there is a little carved out piece of stone. And it says in Hebrew, people always want to know what it says. It says, this too shall pass. Mm. This too shall pass. And, and uh, so when COVID came along as the, race, the recent, uh, most recent crisis, and then these other storms came in with them, this too shall pass. Uh, and, and, and so what I do, hang on. And, and to those pastors who are discouraged right now, what do you do when you're going through hell? You keep walking. Okay. You don't sit down. I don't want to stay in hell. You, when you're going through hell, you just keep walking. And, and you put one foot in front of the other. Sometimes getting up and putting one foot in front of the other is a successful day for a pastor. I'd love to, um, such a helpful picture of those early days of your ministry and, and how those, the, the voice of the Lord in your life has kept you going for, yeah. for so many years. Um, I'd love to sort of zoom in on uh, maybe one of those crises or, or one of those periods of time for you when you felt, you know, like the wind was getting beat out of you. And as yeah. a I mentioned it before we started recording. My wife died uh, October 28th. Mm. So leading through loss, I took three months off for bereavement. I'm still like only partway back. I'm not, not fully back, but yeah. um, talk to us about how, what you've learned in light of those, 
those things that the Lord said to you at the very beginning of your ministry. Yeah. yeah. And then you go through a period and criticism and loss and, yeah. you know, you and Kay have experienced tremendous loss. Yeah. Um, how do I keep going? What do I do? And, and to all of us as leaders who are going through a year of, of so much loss, how do we well, keep our North Star? And like I said, we're going to go through a tsunami of grief because a lot of people who will never um, get COVID have still lost a lot. They missed the prom. They missed their graduation. Uh, they missed the birth of their first grandchild. Uh, they, 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 they couldn't go to their daddy's um, uh, you know, funeral. Uh, there, there's so many things that, that people have lost that... Um, you know, uh, when it finally catches on and fi people finally get that and they, they realize what they've lost, there is going to be a lot of grief. And that's why I actually believe that grief is going to be a front door for evangelism uh, in in the next years, because uh, mm -hmm. so many so many people are, are are dealing with this. Let me just give you if a pastor's happen to be taking notes, some some off the off the top of my head thoughts on grief. Grief is individual, and what that means is everybody grieves differently. So there's no one way to grieve. Uh, just just know that there's no one right way to grieve. Um, grief takes time. I, I like to say there's no expiration date on grief. You know, if I were to lose this arm, uh, Dave, I'm going to notice it's gone for the rest of my life. Uh, it, it'll be easier to deal with, yes, but I will know that's gone. You losing a wife, me you losing a son, according to the stre Holmes stress scale, you know, it's a scale of one to 100 on the most stressful things in life. 100 at the top, the most stressful thing is the loss of a spouse or a child. Hmm. More, more than being in on the front line of a battle in the army or anything else. So you, you're at the top, 100 on, on that. Grief takes time. You can't rush it. Nobody can tell you. People will say uh, at some point, and they mean well, but are you over it? You never get over it. Grief is not something you get over. It's something you get through. Okay. And what I have learned about grief is that it's a good thing. It is, it, grief is actually a gift. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. I can't receive comfort if I stuff my grief. I can only receive comfort if I feel my grief. Grief is a gift from God. It's how we get through the transitions of life. There is no success without growth. There is no growth without change. There is no change without loss. And there is no a loss without pain. So a, a, a church, a pastor who wants his church to grow without going through loss and pain is like a woman saying, I want to have a baby, but I don't want to go through labor and delivery. It, it isn't going to happen. Now, here's a very important thing in dealing with people in pain. The deeper the pain, the fewer words you use every pastor needs to write this down. The deeper the pain, the fewer words you use. If, if you are talking to somebody who had a bad hair day, you can talk to them for 30 minutes. But, but if they just lost a wife or a son, you show up and you shut up. There's nothing you can say that will help. They don't need your words. 
they need you. It's the ministry of presence. Pastors and people always go, I, I didn't call them because I didn't know what to say. Don't say anything. Show up and shut up. It's the ministry of presence. Just be there. Um, when, when Matthew died, the night before he died, he had come over to our house and he had, um, we, had, we had eaten dinner together, watched TV, played a couple games. And as he was leaving, he goes, Dad, I'm, I'm just so tired. He had struggled with mental illness since a baby. He'd struggled with clinical depression since a young child and had been through, when he was 17 years old, he came to me in tears one day and said, Dad, it's real obvious I'm not going to be healed. We've been to the best doctors. I've had the best therapists, the best counselors, the best prayer, prayer warriors praying for me. Dad, you're a man of faith. Mom is a woman of faith. It's real obvious I'm not going to be healed. Why can't I just go to heaven right now? That'll break your heart as a dad to have your son say those kind of words to you. And me in tears, sobbing back, said, Matthew, I don't think you really want to die. I just think you want to ease the pain. But I, I, I do believe this. My prayer is twofold. One, either you'll have a miracle and you will miraculously be cured of your mental illness. I don't care if it's by medicine or miracle. Doesn't matter to me. If God wants to use therapy and, and medicine, fine. I, I don't, I'm not, I just want you to be healed. But I said, Matthew, the truth is this is not heaven. This is earth. And everything on earth is broken and not everybody gets healed. And not every problem goes away. And not everything has a happy ending. Everything is broken on this planet. So what do you do with the problem that can't be solved? You have to manage it. You have to learn how to manage it. And my prayer is that with your good Christian faith, you're a strong believer, uh, with help from Christian doctors, or psychiatrists, medicine, therapy, your own growth, support group of others, that you will be able to manage this pain and help others in the future, if that's if that's what it is. Because some things just don't go away in life. This is not heaven. That's why we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because in heaven, it's done perfectly, completely, instantly, all the time. It's not. That's rare here on earth. A lot of things happen. If I got drunk and drove into a woman and killed her and her baby, that's not God's will. That's my will. A sin is not the will of God. Sorry, it's just not. And I'm not going to attribute the sin to God. So anyway, he made it 10 more years. He was very courageous. But that night, he went home. And when we didn't hear from him for 24 hours. And so Kay and I began to be worried because that was very rare. And we drove over to his house. His car was in the driveway. The door was locked. We didn't have a key to his house. And we're standing there fearing that what we'd feared might happen someday and what we'd prayed might, would never happen someday. And we called the police to come and break down the door. And we're standing there sobbing, holding each other, my wife and I, sobbing. And Kay was wearing a necklace that had two words on it that was the title of her most recent book at the time. And it said, choose joy. And I said, how do you choose joy when your heart is breaking in a thousand pieces? How's it, how do you choose joy when your heart's breaking in a thousand pieces? Well, the police came, broke it down, found out that he had shot himself 
it was a mess. We couldn't even go in to see it. Within about 15 minutes, my small group was there. I don't just believe in small groups. I'm in a part, the group I'm in, I've been in 18 years. My group showed up on those door steps. They, there was nothing they could say that was going to encourage me. What they did was hug me. The guys got around and hugged me and the girls got around and hugged Kay. And then they said, we're not going home tonight. We're, we're staying at your place. You, you don't have to do anything. They slept in the kitchen and on the sofa. They said, we're just going to be here with you. That's the power of koinonia. That's the power of community. I received, this is no exaggeration, because I'm pretty well known. Uh, there, I received maybe 35,000 letters and cards of condolences. Um, and it was a brutal time. I mean, to walk through an airport and see my son's name on the CNN ticker with the word suicide is gut-wrenching. It's just gut-wrenching. The cards that meant the most to me were not from rock stars and presidents and prime ministers. I, I got those, but it was, they were primarily, the ones that meant the most to me were from people that Matthew had led to Christ that had been depressed themselves. Matthew would go on these suicide websites and talk people out of suicide. And he would say to me, dad, I know the truth. It just, I can't get it to work for me. I have this claw in my brain and I'm in pain all the time. And I had people write me said, you know, I know Matthew's in heaven and I know he struggled with mental illness, but he led me to faith and I'm gonna be in heaven one day with him. And I remember writing in my journal, and I would encourage anybody, and I would encourage you, uh, David, to, to keep a journal because you'll forget what you felt. You'll, you'll forget. Write it down, and it'll be really important later. I wrote, in God's garden of grace, even broken trees bear fruit. And then I wrote, and we're all broken because we're all broken in mind and in body and in spirit. We, none of us are perfect. God only uses broken things. If he used perfect things, nothing would get done because there aren't any. So in grief, one of the important things in grief is to really realize that feelings are meant to be felt. Sounds pretty simple, but it's a, it's a very important, profound truth. Feelings are meant to be felt, not to be stuffed. And don't try to get over it. You don't get over it. You get through it. You don't get over it. You get through it. Um, the deeper the pain, the fewer words you use, but what you do is, is you feel the feelings. You don't repress them. You don't suppress them. You confess them. You, you express them to God. It, it, to, when when I see so many particular men, we're not good at grief. And, and we're, we're just not good at it. I'm not good at it. And I had to learn to, to express it, to express feelings. Um, and uh, if you don't, it's like shaking up a can of Coke and putting it in the freezer. It's going to explode at some point. 
it's going to come out sideways. And this is where you see guys having affairs, or getting into porn, uh, gambling, or all kinds of bizarre behavior because they never dealt with something they were grieving. They never really dealt with it. The only illegitimate feeling, every feeling is legitimate. The only illegitimate feeling is second guessing yourself. If only, if only I'd done this, how would it be different? If only I'd done that, it would be different. That is useless and it's worthless. The only reason we have emotions is because God is an emotional God and we're made in his image. The Bible says God gets jealous, God gets angry, God gets frustrated, God laughs, God cries, God weeps, God grieves. The only reason, worms don't have emotions, okay? Uh, 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 they don't have, uh, and cows don't pray, cows don't love, okay? What makes us different is, is we're made in the image of God, and God is an emotional God. So every emotion is legitimate, and here's the thing, is just to realize it doesn't last. Now, I, I, I grieve over your loss of your wife. I will tell you this, that when I lost my son, Kay and I made a decision that we weren't going to try to talk each other out of our pain, that we weren't going to try to cheer each other up. And uh, grief is, comes in waves like this. And one minute you go, I can handle it. And the next minute you go, I can't handle it. And the next minute I can handle and then I can't. And you can go through that. You know this. You, you go through it a hundred times in one day. You can go up in, in a minute. You can go through waves. Uh, but your wave never matches anybody else's. Okay? So, like, my wave doesn't match Kay's wave. And so what we did is when in the years ahead, you will hear a song or smell something, or taste something, and it's going to trigger a, a grief, okay? It's just going to trigger. Please let that grief out. Pause and grieve, okay? Don't stop it. Just go, yeah, I am sad. I'm sad. You, It's okay to tear up. Tears are not a sign of weakness. They're a, tire, a sign of love. They're a sign of love. And so we, Kay and I are actually closer today because we made this decision that when one of us is grieving, the other person walks over and instead of trying to cheer them up or talk to them, um, uh, 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 talk them out of their grief, we just put an arm around them and share the grief. Okay, pat on the back, a handshake. The point I wanna make there is that we are responsible to people, but we're not responsible for them. Hmm. and. So we can't second guess uh, what they do or what we do, but we can just be there. It's the ministry of presence. You know, it's show up and shut up. And so, and, and you're gonna have to, Dave, you're, one of the parts of guilt, of forgiveness, I mean, parts of grief is you're gonna have to forgive people who say the wrong thing. The, 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 some of the people who meant the most sincere thing said the most hurtful things to me. Mm. Okay. And, you know, people say, well, at least you got other kids. I don't want my other kids. Okay. It's like, well, at least you're young. You could marry again. Come on. I, I had the love of my life. You know, that people, and I actually, you have to forgive them because bitterness is a sin. Grief is not. Grief's a good thing, but resentment will kill you.
pretty much for 16 weeks, all I did is be alone with God or with Kay. And that was it. I didn't really do anything. Um, because and, and shock was not a matter of weeks for me. It was months and months and months I was in shock. And I, I still am grieving today. But um, when I came back, I did a, I decided I was going to do like C.S. Lewis did. You know, he wrote that book, A Grief Observed, when Joy, his wife, died. And I thought, I'm going to out of body kind of look at, examine my own, how I'm handling this. And we all know Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of death and dying. But I think she missed a couple. And, and I came back and I did a series called uh, How to Get Through What You're Going Through. And each week I took one of the phases. They're not even really phases because they can be out of order. Right. But, but the first one is shock. Okay. The second one is sorrow. And that's just deep, deep sadness that, that you feel. And you move from shock to sorrow. And then you move to struggle. And the struggle, uh, a set part of grief, is where we ask the why questions. Why did it happen? Why now? Why her? Why this time? Why God, why? Now, it's okay to ask why. Even Jesus did on the cross. My God, my God, why? So if it's okay for Jesus to ask on the cross, why have you forsaken me? It's okay for me to ask that, okay? but. The question, the real issue, the test is, what are you going to do when you don't get an answer? Because you're not going to get an answer. Uh, Me trying to understand why everything happens in the world would be like an ant trying to understand the internet. Okay. My brain capacity isn't big enough. If I could understand God, then I'd I'd be God. So it's okay to ask why. It really is. Just when you have to say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That in spite of my not getting it, I remember writing in my journal, I'd rather walk with God and not have my questions answered than have all my questions answered and not walk with God. Mm. You see, a lot of us think, we think, and the biggest mistake people make in grief is they think that if they had an explanation, it would make it less painful. Explanations never comfort. It is what they need is the presence of God, not not. If my wife, Kay, if Kay were to drop dead tonight and I knew the reason, it wouldn't make it any less painful. Okay, it'd still be excruciatingly painful, even if I knew the reason why. So we, we think that that's going to make it better, but it doesn't. So we go from shock to sorrow to struggle. And then we come, when we finally give up on that and go, well, I'm not going to get the answer, we go to surrender. And in surrender, you just go, okay, Lord, I'm going to, I just need your presence. I just need you. I don't need your explanation. I just, I just need comfort. I'm hurting. I'm in pain. And we go to surrender. When we get to the point of surrender, it takes us to the next stage, which is sanctification. And that's when God starts working in my character. He's, I'm not the same person I was seven years ago. Okay, I uh, uh, I still, unfortunately, I still have the same personality quirks, but but I'm not I'm not the same person I was because it transforms you. Grief transforms you, and uh, you, one thing it sensitizes you to everybody else for sure. In pain, yeah. you know, you you've known that I'm sure already. It makes you sensitive. Um, so that's the sanctification, and then finally you get to the last stage, 
which is service, which is 2 Corinthians 1. God comforts us in our pain so that we can comfort others with the comfort we've been given. That your greatest ministry will come out of your deepest pain. I'm absolutely convinced of that. Your greatest man. I've talked to two suicide dads of suicide today already. Okay. And there's not a day goes by or a week goes by. Some days I don't get it, but congressmen will call and you you name it. And you will find that God will give you people will know, oh, he's safe. He's lost a loved one. He knows how to deal with it. And, um, and, and, and so, you know, some of the things that I've just shared on this, maybe you, you can pass them on because we, we, nobody trains us. Nope. Nobody trains. We all know we're going to have loss, but nobody trains us. Hmm. Yeah. It's loss is inevitable. The one thing's for sure is death. So, um, that's, that's what I would say about that. That was a real privilege yeah. just to hear and to see the two of you. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. And I'm very sorry for your loss, Rick. Thank you. By the way, that's what you need to tell people. You need, and Carrie, you need to teach pastors to do this. There's only one appropriate thing to say because people don't know what to say. They'll see you in the grocery store. And the only appropriate thing to say is, I'm sorry for your loss. Or even more, in my case, I, they, Matthew had a brother and sister. I'm sorry your family's loss. Okay. I'm sorry for your family's loss. And people say, well, I haven't seen him in six months. Fine. Start with that. Because hmm. you can get, be, be, I can guarantee you six months from today, David's still going to be missing his wife. And if I hadn't seen him and, and, and I knew, the first thing I would have said to him is, David, I'm so sorry for your family's loss. I'm so sorry. Then we can talk about it. What you don't want to ask is, how are you doing? You don't want to know. <laughs> don't, don't ask me that question because you, it may be, I may be having a tough day that time, you know? So don't ask me a question. You don't want me to answer. <laughs> I wish, I wish somebody had told me early on, Rick, in my ministry, uh, shut up and show up. That is the best pastoral advice. Yeah. I, yeah. I think there is. So, so why, you know, I wish I could start ministry over now with what I know now. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> Don't we all? Just want to say again, uh, Rick, thank, thanks to you for joining us today and for, you know, your openness. You just have such a, a great, honest, uh, sort of forthright, just clear thinking way. I know yeah. you've taken a lot of hits through the years, sometimes yeah. for that openness, but um, I've always appreciated just learning from you. And, uh, and sharing today, you know, we're just such an interesting sort of crux as a church, sort of like a pivotal moment for the church. And uh, so I'm, I'm so excited about what the Lord is up to, about yeah. how he's deepening our faith in him. Amen. I certainly think that as uh, we're leading through loss, as I'm leading through loss, that yeah. he's making our roots go down deeper into him, not just yeah. so that we can have a bigger ministry or do more in the world, but so that we have greater intimacy with Jesus. Right. And um I see that in your life, you know, just the way you talk mm-hmm. about scripture, the way you talk about your love for the Lord. Yeah. I uh, just want to honor you today. Thank you. Well, I do love Jesus. If he didn't do anything else for me, I own the rest of my life. People say, why do you do what you do? I love Jesus Christ. Mm. I love Jesus Christ. Rick, I, uh, I can't thank you enough for sharing so personally. And uh, that was a, a really holy moment. And again, very sorry for your loss. Uh, and 
very grateful for you and for your legacy of leadership. Thank you so, so much for being with us this week. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation and learned as much from it as I did. And Rick, thanks for being so open and vulnerable and inspiring and all of that. Man, there were so many learnings. And if you like transcripts, I do. Sometimes I will listen to a podcast and I'll order transcripts on my own dime just because they were so helpful. Well, you never have to do that. You can just go to the show notes and you can find these uh, for this episode at kerryneuhoff.com forward slash episode 409. And because nobody can spell my name, if you go to leadlikeneverbefore.com, you'll also, that'll get you to the same place. So anyway, I uh, hope you enjoy those show notes. And uh, hey, we got some uh, incredible episodes coming up. Plus, I'm going to talk about when do you know whether it's time to leave? Rick, like many other leaders, have stayed for 40 years. That is not typical. Uh, how do you know whether it's your time to go? I get an email like that almost every week from one of you. And so I want to share some principles with you. And uh, next episode, we talk with John Ramstead. Here is an excerpt. When I'm flying a low level and, and all of a sudden situations change and I'm literally a fraction of a second away from front flying into a rock wall doing a, a low level. Yeah. My only, the only thing I can do is like react, but the entire OODA process happened. It just happened really fast. That happened because there was so much training. There was so much rehearsal. There were so many mentoring sessions. Also coming up, Ian Morgan Cron, NEF Downs, Tim Keller, Simon Sinek. Who else have we got? Gordon McDonald is coming back. Man, you guys love Gordon. That's so exciting. Allison Fallon, Amy Edmondson, um, and a whole lot more. I got David Allen from Getting Things Done. He's going to be on the show as well. So if you subscribe, you get that for free. Thank you for leaving ratings and reviews. It means the world to me. And let's talk about whether it is time to stay or go for you. And this is brought to you by our partners. And I hope you'll check them out. We choose these very, very carefully. And I'm a big fan of what's going on at BarnaCities.com. In fact, involved with that. So if you want to reach more people on the local level and get research custom tailored to your city, go to BarnaCities.com. Check that out. And by ProMedia Fire, you can get help with all your social media management and digital growth and receive 10% off at ProMediaFire.com forward slash carry. Well, how do you know whether it's time to go? Uh, I mean, I served at a church for 20 years as the lead pastor from 1995 to 2015. Obviously, I've moved on to do this full-time. Part of that was succession. I had reached a, well, it was still young. I, I was 50 when I handed it over. And my friends are like, you're too young for that. It's like, looking back on it, nah, I don't think so. But I also transitioned careers. I went from radio into law. I uh, thought about journalism for a while. Yeah, that, that, that industry changed, didn't it? And uh, so, so, did, uh, so did radio. Uh, and, then, and then went into ministry because I sensed a call. And now I'm doing this, helping you thrive in leadership is the goal. And I'm doing that every single day. So how do you know when it's time to leave? I also, by the way, changed denominational affiliations in the midst of all of that. Some leaders stay a long time. Uh, I think the average tenure is usually five years or so that people kind of make a job change or that kind of thing. So here are some signs I've learned to pay attention to in my own life. Now, I would say, don't listen to this section and then just quit. Okay, that's a bad decision. If you email me and say, hey, should I stay or should I go? Here's what I'm going to tell you. I say the same thing every time. It's like, you know what? You need to sit around with some people who know you, know the situation, love you, who can speak the truth to you, and ask them whether these factors apply. Because 
I always go through this process with a lot of friends around me who can pray with me, who can help me discern it and see what I'm not seeing and call out the truth. So, but here's some signs to pay attention to. All that said, number one, you've lost your passion. Now, losing passion overall can be like a burnout thing. And so you have to make sure that you're not like dispassionate about everything. But if you're, you know, pretty healthy in life, but you're losing your passion around work, pay attention. You just got to ask yourself, well, why is that happening? Because ultimately a passionless leader is an ineffective leader. So watch your passion level. Number two, think about your movement in the organization, particularly if you're not a senior leader. You know, is there another role you could get excited about? If there's not, it might be time to go. So when I transitioned out of the lead pastor role, I was still quite excited about, you know, teaching. That was my favorite part of the job. So I hung on to that for a few years, teaching full-time for three and then part-time. And now, you know, I'm off the teaching team as well by choice. But if you can get excited about another role, maybe you can craft that out and you can stay. My bias is towards staying because I think long-term 10 years make a big difference. So if there's no other role you get excited about, you're losing passion, okay, pay attention to that. Number three, You've affected all the change you can. You've done everything you possibly can to bring about change. And uh, you're like, no, I think I think I've taken this as far as I can. So that's another sign. Number four, your vision no longer lines up with the organization's vision. Now that's a big thing. That's one of the things that uh, helped. It wasn't the only thing. There were a unique set of circumstances, but helped me decide, to change denominations where my vision was no longer lining up with the dominant vision around me. Uh, You may have that with a board or with a team. Now, if it's with a team, it's like, okay, you haven't led them into a place of vision. But if you're finding that, you know, you feel like a bit of a fish out of water, pay attention to that, which is number five. You feel a bit like a fish out of water. It's like, yeah, this used to feel like a really good fit, but it really doesn't anymore. I, I have seen that a number of times in my life, and you got to pay attention to that. Um, I know that's a little bit subjective, but when you no longer feel like you fit, you'll never realize your full potential as a leader, and the organization won't realize their potential either. Okay, that's another sign. Number six, your excitement about what's happening elsewhere is greater than your passion for what's happening where you are. So being totally transparent, that's a little bit of what happened to me when I was lead pastor of the church as I started this little hobby of like blogging and, you know, eventually podcasting and speaking to leaders. And I was finding that that was gaining a lot of momentum and that my heart was kind of drifting there. And then I also found, you know, okay, I think I'm at the age where I need to hand this off to make sure it's firmly in the hands of the next generation. But if you notice that your excitement about what's happening elsewhere is greater than your passion for what's happening where you are, pay attention. Now, listen, I also understand in a marriage context, that can be the recipe for an affair, okay? You can have an affair on your job too, where you're like, okay, I'm more interested in this than that. No, 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 no. You can't can't handle that for long, but perhaps filter that through with friends and say, is there a calling here? And ask yourself that question. And then number seven, most important, and I hinted at this at the beginning, your inner circle agrees. Don't do this on your own. Don't say, hey, Curry said I should quit. I did not say that, Okay. Um, you got to go talk with some people who love you, who will speak the truth to you, who care about you, who care about the organization. Don't find a bunch of cheerleaders who are going to just feed you back whatever they think you want to hear. No, you want some people, pray about it. And, you know, when I stepped out of the lead pastor role, I prayed about it for months. I call it my summer of discernment, summer of 2015. Uh, multiple, multiple people involved, including the people who were in the organization that I ended up handing off to my successor. 
And, uh, you know, when you, when you do that kind of a process and you're not ducking out, you know, at midnight and leaving town and your elder board is on board and your inner circles on board and your people outside the organization are on board. And I'm, I'm talking here about maybe 12 to 15 people and you really prayed about it and you have that internal calling, then maybe, yeah, maybe it's time to go and do not neglect your spouse. Don't neglect your partner. Uh, I find the voice of God often sounds like the voice of my wife. So I need to really pay attention to that. And then when you're ready to go, then prayerfully, humbly step out. And sometimes, you know what? You go through this whole process and you're like, nah, I'm going to be here another five, 10 years. So, hey, whatever that does, asking the questions every once in a while is a good thing. So I hope that helps. Hey, I do um, like some teaching like this in written form on my website. And if you want to join the 80,000 leaders who get a daily nugget of leadership wisdom, you can go to kerryneuhoff.com forward slash email, join the list there. We often send out free things to people on our list and give you inside access to an awful lot. In the meantime, thank you so, so much for listening. Really, really appreciate you. Thanks for leaving ratings and reviews, sharing on social. Tremendously grateful for you. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.